All right, Genesis House, why don't we uh, turn to John chapter 4, verse 46. John 4, 46. Hey, Kevin. Yeah. Did he take a hike? Uh, just the, the, the computer screen went black, but I can see an arrow. Is there something on the Zoom that's changed the, the format? Like, um, I, can't see the, I can see the PowerPoint here, but not on my screen. So I can't, um, I can't access like the... What was it? I don't know. Just super strange. Okay, I'll go back. That's it. Okay. Always something. <laughs> Why don't we stand and read the Word of God? John four forty six. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went out to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoke to him and started off. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So we inquired of them the hour, and he began to get better. They said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Father, thank you for your word. We are grateful that we can read it and preach it once again in this uh, beautiful building. We thank you for your provision for this place, and we thank you for the provision for your word. May this environment that we're in be filled with your spirit as we uh, dive into your scriptures, words that were spoken 2,000 years ago, but of complete relevance for us today. We know that uh, as your apostles wrote this, that we see ourselves under their apostolic authority. We're not rogue uh, Christians who make up our own version of what the Bible says. We understand that we submit to every word that you, that you uh, put in here that the apostles wrote. And uh, we treat our church here as if uh, we were walking with you 2,000 years ago. So again, we look forward to our time together and uh, time of encouragement and great conversation. Amen. Please be seated.
Well, as you notice this morning, I'm taking another break from Timothy, and I'll explain why. As you know, Dan Jansen and I preached simultaneously through the, uh, the Bible together. Uh, since we came from him as a church plant, we, we still have strong community with them, and I see them on a weekly basis. And so Dan's on holidays, and so I'm taking another week off till he gets back so we can do this together. And to be honest with you, the next two weeks anyway after this will also be out of Timothy because uh, I'm on holidays. Um, I'm at a wedding for one Sunday and I'll be here next Sunday, but I won't be preaching because I'm on vacation starting today. So just so you know, Stuart is preaching one week and uh, Tyson will be preaching another. And then on August 16th, I'm back full time with no other foreseen breaks that I know of until Little Bow camp out. And uh, well, my goal is to preach right through Timothy, right to the end, uh, with no breaks after that. But hopefully, you know, with the summer, you understand why we have to jump around a bit and make um, provisions for one another. So let's just jump in and waste no more time here. Um, before I want to, actually, I'll just read 46a. When I say 46a, I mean the first half of uh, 46. <laughs> this is my own lingo for my own studies. Okay, so John writes this. Therefore he, Jesus, of course, came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Before we get into the heart of this passage, I want to give you two important details of way of introduction so that you understand the context in which the historical event of, the, the, of this story occurred. I first want to give you a, a geography reminder and the layout of the land because this will prove to be important for the details in the rest of the sermon. But you notice it says here that um, therefore when Jesus came again to, to Cana, you remember the first time he came to Cana, it was to do the, heal, uh, the water into wine miracle where there was a wedding and John makes this clear that's the reason why he was there the first time. But Jesus has just come from Jerusalem and he was there for Passover which was one of the three feasts that all Jews had to celebrate on a yearly basis. And he'd been there, and he happened to travel north through, um, north through uh, Samaria to Galilee. So if you look at the map in the south, you see Samaria. Jesus has come from Jerusalem, which is south of Samaria. He's made his way north, and you can see the region of Galilee highlighted with a, a green border um, on the map. And the two main towns that are involved in this story are Cana. So if you look for the I in the Galilee, you'll find Cana. And if you look for the second E in Galilee, you'll find the, the name Capernaum. So you've got Cana, south, uh, west, and Capernaum just off the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Galilee, of course, is a region where Jesus spent the majority of his three-year ministry. It's where he was not only, he was the area he was born in, it's where he was from. Um, actually, no, he was born in Bethlehem, but he, was, he spent his time in Galilee. That's where he called his first disciples and basically made his home. Now, pointing out with Cana again, this is where, of course, Jesus performed his first miracle, turning the water into wine. But Capernaum was Jesus' really, his kind of his hometown. He spent large portions of his time there and performed multitudes and multitudes of miracles. Uh, the, one of the most famous ones is the paralytic that came through the roof. You remember the paralytic? He, he, he wanted to see Jesus and he couldn't, so they took the thatches off the roof and lowered them through the roof. That all happened in Capernaum. But what, the key point I want to bring out in showing you the geography is really the distance between the two towns. If you look at Capernaum in the north and, and uh, uh, Cana in the southwest, that's a distance of 30 kilometers. 
30K, just to give you an idea. Maybe, you know, here to High River type of deal. Okay? So that's how far um, this is, approximately 30 kilometers. And that'll be important for the story. Second one is the spiritual temperature, I'd say, of the Galilean people. Their spiritual, like, wisdom and where they were at with the Lord. As a general statement, the Galilean people were not interested in Jesus because they recognized Him as their Messiah, didn't see Him as their Savior. And their attraction to Him was purely as a miracle worker. They were signs and wonders based people. We pick this up actually in verse 43. Read this with me. It says that after the two days He went forth from there into Galilee, the two days they were talking about is Samaria, He says, For Jesus Himself testified that a prophet had no honor in His own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. You might think when it says that they received Jesus, that's a positive thing. But it's not seen as a positive thing in, in, in the context here. Because, for example, in verse 48 of our verses, in chapter 4, Jesus rebukes the royal official when he says, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply won't believe. That's not stated in the positive, that's stated in the negative. And if you consider Luke 29, or Luke 11, 29, Jesus is in Galilee earlier, or, or sorry, not earlier, in, in Galilee, in the book Gospel of Luke, and he records this, as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, a wicked and evil generation just seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah. So again, we have to think of what the Galilean faith was like in light of Jesus' own words. Now the spiritual condition of the Galileans uh, is important because at this point, uh, they're not interested in Jesus uh, as their Messiah. At this point, like they, they will they'll accept Him as long as they see signs and miracles. But unless they see those, they're not going to believe in anything like His words or His mission or His message. They're attracted to signs and wonders. And this is where the, the royal official is in terms of his belief in Jesus. Jesus is, is really a miracle worker, and that's it. So with all this in mind, let's now get into the heart of the text. In 46, again, it says in Cana, there was a royal, sorry, in Capernaum, there was a royal official whose son was sick. He does not record the name of the royal official here. He just refers to him by his title. But we know from the scriptures that there was only one king one king in that time in the Galilean region, that was King Herod. King Herod was king over the region of Galilee. Pontius Pilate, of course, was stationed in Judea. But Herod's in Galilee. So it was probably safe to deduce then that this man served as an official under Herod's leadership and under his authority. So as a result, the royal official himself would have held a position of prestige and honor and status. And in, in verse 51, we know he must have had some clout because it says that when he had servants, he had slaves underneath him. So he had some kind of position of honor and power. But the key thing that we need to, that John wants to point out is not so much his position or his title, but the issue with his son. See, this guy was in a state of desperation. He was in desperation. And it didn't matter how much power, prestige, or position he had. He still wasn't... Uh, free from the potential of personal tragedy. And this guy was facing one. This guy was facing one. And it says that his son was sick. Now, don't get the sense of the, that this was just a mere cold when he was sick. 
In verse 52, he says that he had a major fever. He had a fever. And in 47, to the point of death. So this is a sickness that had, had a fever to the point of death. This was not some... He didn't just have the sniffles. So it was a very serious issue. And put yourself in your, his shoes as parents. What's the one thing that would absolutely rock your world? For those of you who have kids. The one thing that would absolutely rock you would be that you had a sick child at home. There was nothing that you have tried or could do to bring any healing to this uh, boy's life or your girl's life for that matter. And you, were, you tried even all the medical things out there. Nothing. He was at the, your child's at the point of death. There's nothing you can do. You understand the emotions and the anxiety of what that would be like. And this is where this guy was at. And I, even though it's not mentioned, I wonder, um, almost positive, as a guess, that uh, this guy being in Harris Court probably had the best medical attention in Galilee. He's at the top doctor's offices because he was under the king's authority and he would have had access to probably the best Herod had to offer. And he, nothing was working. So he hears Jesus is in town. Or, or close to town. He's 30 kilometers away. And in verse 47 it says, When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Two observations in this text uh, reveal even more how far this guy was desperate. First of all, back to the geography, he was willing to travel 30 kilometers to go get Jesus. Why is that important? Let me ask you a question as a parent. If your child is sick to the point of death, would you even consider leaving their side for one minute? Those of you who have children in the hospital, do you, don't you feel some kind of burden or guilt even when you go down to the basement or the, 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 the main floor to get a Starbucks coffee to go back up? <laughs> Your whole mindset is on that child. This guy is willing to leave, travel 30 kilometers at a last ditch desperation for someone to bring healing to his son's life. And it's not like he jumps in the car and gets there in 15 minutes. 30 kilometers, the average human being can walk about 5 kilometers an hour. Let's say he was, uh, had a good cardio and he could jog it and he did it 6 kilometers an hour in that rough terrain. So he gets there in between, he gets there in 5 hours. Maybe yeah, 5 to 6 hours he gets there in one shot with no stops. But then he has to find Jesus. He has to work through the crowds to get to him. He has to enter, enter this conversation. And then he has to get back. At best, at best, it's a 14-hour day for this guy, no matter how he shakes it. Something in that neighborhood. He's willing to leave his son, though. That's how desperate he is, because Jesus is his only solution. The second thing that shows desperation is the manner in which he came to Jesus. It says here that he was imploring him to come down and heal his son. That word imploring in the Greek means to beg, to plead. So I could just imagine the, the scene. It's not like, hey, Jesus, I uh, got a minute. I'm um, just wondering if you'd be willing to make a 30-kilometer journey north to, you know, to my town. Because um, there's some things going on here. Like, my son's pretty sick, you know. I could see him maybe, like, on his knees, like, potentially grabbing at his cloak, trying to, like, get his attention, and just absolutely interrupting the crowds to have first uh, dibs at Christ's, Christ's um, attention. So he's bleeding, or bleeding, he's pleading like crazy. 
And here's a huge risk for this guy. Huge risk. He has no guarantee that Jesus is going to forsake his ministry to the people in Cana to go to be with him in Capernaum. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big ask. Jesus, you're this huge miracle worker. You were at Jerusalem. My fellow countrymen saw all the miracles you did there. I've heard about the reports you've done. And so I've come after you because I've heard about everything that they saw at the feast. I want you to interrupt your entire schedule just to take care of my boy. And I want you to take the same journey. I want you to walk six hours to my place. And then you can return back to Canaan and, and spend another six hours and do this all for me. <laughs> Pretty incredible ask. But desperate. Desperate. And you understand that as a parent. There's one key observation in this whole verse. Even though he believed Jesus was a miracle worker and was the only one that could heal his son, he made a huge assumption. He believed that Jesus needed to be present in order for the healing to take place. You pick that up in verse 47? Read it with me. You can circle it. He was imploring him to come down and heal his son. Look at verse 49. We're going to get to this in a second. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus needed to be physically present as a miracle worker for his son to be healed. That's his belief in Jesus. So yes, he is the one that can heal, but he's limited. He has to be physically present in order for healing to take place because that's the way it normally works from everything he knows about Jesus Christ. Really important observation, church. That's foundational to the passage. So clearly, the royal official was willing to take the risk because he, he, he made it. He made it to Cana and was able to uh, talk to Jesus. So how does Jesus respond? Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. <laughs> I don't know if, the, if you were in the royal official's shoes or not, how you'd feel about that answer to you, but I would suggest that, was, that would be not what you're expecting or hoping to hear. You'd be hoping to hear, absolutely, let's just say his name was Claudius or something. <laughs> Claudius, absolutely, I will be there in a heartbeat. Let's go now. That's not what he heard. He heard, unless you people, you royal official, and all you Galilean type people, the signs and wonders based, miracle based people, unless you people believe, you won't believe in the way I want you to believe. To believe that I am the Messiah. I am more than just a miracle worker. I am more than just a mere man. See, Jesus rebukes him for the shallowness, really, of his faith. And not only him, but the Galileans as well. Because they're sign seekers. They had an affinity for the supernatural. And wouldn't trust in him fully without a display of the supernatural. They were the kind of people that only accept him based on his works and not on his word. I'll say that again. He was the kind of person that would only accept Jesus on, based on his works and not his word. And while this sort of faith was not totally rejected by Jesus, it's clearly, from Jesus' point of view, not adequate. You see, Jesus came not as a miracle worker. He came to preach the gospel about who he was as a person, the Son of God and man, and what his mission was and why he came. There's an incredible verse in Mark, or passage in Mark chapter 1, verse 32. Read this with me. Listen, listen to this. It says, That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. 
the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Interesting, because the people don't know who he is. <laughs> Very early in the morning, while it was dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone's looking for you! Of course they are, because he's healing them all. And Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. That is why I have come. I have come so they can hear my words. So that when they understand my words, they can understand my mission and my message and who I am. And their response to me, I didn't come so they could see my works. That's not the, that's not the message. Or that's not what I want people to believe in me for. They're really important. This is why the Samaritan experience uh, days earlier was so important. Do you know what happened in Samaria? you remember the story? Jesus meets a woman at the well. He has a conversation with her. She doesn't understand he's talking about spiritual realities and she's thinking it's all physical about this whole water deal. She eventually realizes that in his presence that he's the Messiah because he's revealed to her that there's sin in her life. She, she receives Christ as the Messiah, understands her sin in his presence, tells the village. The village listens, spend time with him and there's a scene where Jesus is sitting with the disciples and he talks about the harvest and he talks about how these people are coming to be basically reaped. People in Samaria all became believers in the Messiah for the real reason. And guess what? How many miracles did they do in Samaria? Zero. They all responded to his word. They all responded to his word. Verse 41, I'll read it to you in chapter 4. This is regarding the Samaritans. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves and know that this is the one is indeed the Savior of the world. Not one miracle. That's in contrast to the faith of the royal official and the Galileans who only will believe if they see miracles. Totally different. Works, words, Word works, different kind of people. This is important. You see, this is key for all the miracles. They're not meant to be seen as ends in and of themselves. For Jesus to you do miracles, it was there was a purpose behind them. That in them they would see the sign that there was someone greater in their midst. And that through the miracle, they would point to the fact that this was the Son of God. And as a result, would surrender the life to Him and receive eternal life from Him. Just like the Samaritans had. They believed He was the Savior of the world. Savior from what? Sin. Savior from sin. That's what He had come for. And that's what the miracles were point, to point to. At this point though, the royal official has not seen this and understood this. He's all about the works of Jesus, not about the words of Jesus. Man, that speaks to us today. That's not an issue just in Jesus' day. That's a present day reality for the Christian church. I remember in my gym, I had a young man that used to go there. And I had a little table tennis table. 
in the basement just whenever we got bored and wanted to do something for fun. And uh, this guy had been down to Redding, California. And uh, it's a Signs and Wonders based church. And uh, he had been there for a week, he'd come back, and we're down in the basement. And he said, Andrew, you wouldn't believe the things that I saw down there. It was amazing. And I said, like what? And he talked about angel feathers coming down from the sky and landing on the stage. And he talked about they would go up to walls and put dimes on the wall and say, in the name of Jesus, the dime, please stay there. And they'd walk away and it would stick to the wall and it wouldn't fall. And he talked about all these things he was seeing and doing. And we're going to batting, batting back and forth. And uh, after he made those comments, he talked, about, oh yeah, he talked about how amazed they would be and how it was incredible. I need to experience this. I put my paddle down on the table and I just put my hands on the table and I said, I'll just call him John. I'll say, John, can I ask you a question? And he said, what? I said, how many people came to Christ that weekend after everything you witnessed? A blank stare at me. Blank stare. I said, next question. Uh, if, if, uh, how many of those people are going to be discipled by that ministry once they leave? Who's going to disciple these people? Blank stare. <laughs> Listen, the sign-based works miracles is present today. That's alive and kicking. He wanted me to be impressed by the works that he was witnessing down there. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey me. You can't obey him if you don't know his word. <laughs> The work starts to point you to the Word. And then when you read the Word, you have genuine faith and you know how to live and surrender to Jesus Christ. That conversation didn't go the way this young man was expecting in that basement that day. He also lost in ping pong, which uh, I just had to mention. <laughs> oh yeah, pride. Like, that's not a good thing as a Christian. I forgot about that. I forced dumped him. Anyway. Alright. So he's been rebuked. So how does the guy respond? 49. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. <laughs> Missed it. Didn't understand yet. But we see the heart of Jesus here. Because look what he does to him in verse 50. Knowing that his faith is shallow. He says... To him, go, your son lives. You see the heart of Christ? He knew the royal official's belief in him was superficial. Yet he was still willing to extend mercy and compassion to this guy. And what I learned about what was new in here that I'd never seen before, because I preached this years ago uh, when we did the series of John. But I've seen some new observations and this was the key one. At this point, the royal official had no idea that Jesus had just healed his son in those statements. So when he said, go your son lives, Jesus knew there was a complete healing, but this man didn't know yet. There was no tangible proof that he'd been healed. The promise that he believed at this point was that his son would live. So he knew, he didn't say your son has been healed, he said your son will live. So when you go down there with the expectation your son's going to die, that's a huge stress, a lot of anxiety. When Jesus says, by the way, this is again, Claudius, your son's not going to die. Whoa, what a relief of anxiety. 
But I still don't know if he's been fully healed. All I know is if it's, maybe it will come in the future or something. Or, but I know, at least I have a peace of mind. Whatever happens here, he's not going to die. That's what he knew. That's all he knew at this point. He, later, it's revealed when the healing takes place. But not at this point. Why this is important is because of how the royal official responded to Jesus, knowing that at least he would live. Look what he does in, in verse 50. The man believed the word, not the works. <laughs> he believed the word of Jesus that he spoke to him and started off. We see a progression in this man's faith, don't we? At first, Jesus has placed his faith in Christ as a miracle worker based on the works he has to see. Now there's a movement, a little movement forward to the way Jesus wants him to have faith, which is to now obey him based on the word alone. So in regards to the, like the, 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 the life of his son being in his hands, there's no longer required a miracle or validating sign required at this point. Jesus said, go, and the man started off. But this is the essence of the Christian life. And you and I know this. We live day to day by trusting in His Word without any sign, validating sign or proof. If we were waiting for the supernatural to occur in our life before we obeyed Christ and believed in who He was as a, as a, as a man and as God, we wouldn't go anywhere. We wouldn't accomplish anything. We, some of us have been fortunate to see incredible things in the supernatural dimension. But that's not the normal Christian experience day to day and day in and day out. We are, at some point, every Christian and every person has to believe that to live in faith is to just take Him at His word. And to live, start off in our lives in obedience to His word. Like in Luke 12, regarding provisionary care. When Jesus says, don't worry about the things that you will eat or your life or, the, or your body or what you'll wear. God knows these things and He will take care of you. That's a, that's a promise of His Word. He doesn't give us a validating sign in our lives to make that clear. As a general rule, yes, there could be occasions you can do that. We'd have to take Him on His Word that that's a true statement. In the spiritual realm, when He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, most of us, in fact, the only person I know who's had a supernatural encounter with, Je uh, with Jesus has been Brad in our church. He's the only one. And it was through that encounter that he's come to faith in Christ. All of us have had to believe he's the way, the truth, and the life on, not his supernatural displays to us, but on the word of God and the things that we wrestle through in scripture. This is why he said to Thomas, when Thomas said, unless I see and touch, I won't believe that Jesus has been risen. After Jesus sees him, he says, because you've seen me, you believe. Blessed are those who don't see me and yet believe. Blessed are those that have to take my word that I existed and that my message that I proclaim is true. That's you and me as a general rule. But again, he's progressing in this faith. But he's still not a believer in the Messiah yet, the way the Samaritans were. Something was missing. And that was about to change. Pick it up with me in verse 51. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. 
On the way back home, he's met with some great news. His son was alive and his servants had told him, just as Jesus had promised. Now, no doubt he was elated with the report. I mean, Jesus had proved to be trustworthy, his son was going to be alive. But at the same time, he's very curious. There was something burning in his mind he wanted to know. And he, he asked the question in verse 52. He inquired of the slaves the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The seventh hour in the Jewish reckoning is 1 p.m. And that's most likely the time frame that, uh, the time that uh, John is referring to as a Jewish writer. Some think he's using Roman time, which would be the same as ours, which would be 7 p.m. like our time. Uh, but uh, regardless, it's not the time that he was healed, whether it be 1 or 7 p.m., is not the point so much as the answer, the answer it produced and what it produced in the royal official's life. You see, when he heard that he was killed at the seventh hour, he said this in verse 53, the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he believed in his whole household. What the royal official found out in his answer to his question was this. That at the precise time Jesus had declared his son would live, it was more than a promise that he wouldn't die. It actually was a precise moment when he was fully healed. And this resulted in a belief in Jesus that no longer saw him as a miracle worker, but the Son of God. And it was a result was a faith that for the first time in his life led to eternal life. You know, we're not given the mindset of this guy, but from all the observations we've made today, we can deduce what he probably was going through and how he came to the conclusion that he's more than a mere man. He's more than a mere miracle worker. In verse 48 and 49, he thinks that Jesus has to be physically present to heal. Come down, Jesus. Come down. Now what we learn through the healing of a son, what he learned through the healing of a son was, he doesn't have to be present to heal. He commands authority over sickness and death just by his spoken word. And his word has not limited by space, time, or geography. His word has power, his power to inflict, uh, affect his son in a full healing 30 kilometers away. For him, the, all, the, all the, the writing was on the wall. He was dealing with more than just a miracle worker here. Who could do this? Who could speak things into existence other than God himself? Remember Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, the, um, the, the word, um, we got God spoke. He spoke things into existence. Creation. He created the world through his word. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word of God. You know, that whole, that whole phrase. Again, the word, the word. He spoke things into existence. Who can do that but God? And here Jesus has spoken healing over his life, his son's life. This is no longer just faith in a prophet or a mere man. Who else could command such authority but the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God? He no longer had faith just in his works. And faith in, in his word like he did in verse 48. Even though it was a good start. 
his, he had faith in his word beyond this now because the miracle did what it was supposed to accomplish. It was to point to the fact that he was the Messiah. Now this newfound faith impacted this guy greatly. He was the kind of guy that I want all of you to be. He couldn't keep his faith private. <laughs> he couldn't keep his faith private. He just had to share it. In verse 53, he says, when he heard his son live, he says, he himself believed and his whole household. How did he, how did his whole household come to faith? When he got home, he told them about what Christ did. Not only who he did, who he was. Who he was. Not just about the works of Christ, but the identity of Christ. His word, his works, his mission. The foundations of who Jesus was have been completely shaken in this man. And this new revelation had profound implications for him and his family. And just like what happened in Samaria with the woman of the well who shared her faith with others, this man, and a revival broke out and people came to Christ, the same thing happened in this guy's household. And that's a good lesson for us, church. A good lesson. Can I encourage you to start thinking and sharing more like the royal official? Praying for God to open up doors to share your faith with your friends and your family, people that you know. This guy did not want to keep his faith private. He couldn't wait to talk about the Lord and the things he had done and who he was. So what did we learn today? Number one, a uh, duh, Andrew type lesson, but worth saying. <laughs> Remember, you're 2,000 years removed. This is duh to you, but <laughs> not to the royal official, the guys like that. But Jesus is not limited by time, space, or geography in order to bring physical healing to someone. You don't have to ask Jesus to come down. <laughs> you can uh, pray for someone in, a, in a, uh, another province or country over the phone and Christ can bring healing to that person. Yeah, is it good to be in the presence of people and lay hands on people and pray for the sick? Absolutely. But it's not, it's not um, always necessary in order for Christ to still fulfill His mandate. Number two, although sign-based faith is a kind of faith, it's not a genuine faith. Right? He says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply won't believe. It's not that they can't come to believe. It's just that they won't believe without them. So it is a kind of faith, and that they believe in Him as a miracle worker. At least it's something. But it's not faith that produces eternal life. It's not a faith that Christ is looking for. He's, he doesn't want to be loved for His works. He wants to be loved for who He is and what He's done. His Word. This is why the Jesus rebukes the Galileans, but not the Samaritans. And there's a danger in seeking, there's a danger in sign-seeking faith. Just like that conversation with a guy in the basement. Spent a week in Redding, California. Had no idea if anybody came to Christ. Didn't talk about anybody coming to know the Lord. And talked about nothing in terms of discipleship. Obeying His Word. And He wanted me to be impressed. And I was depressed. Not impressed by the conversation. Physical healing does not take care of spiritual healing in and of itself. Physical healing is to lead to the spiritual healing if the sign, if the person teaching the person has been healed, what the sign is to accomplish in that person's life. 
Lesson three. The purpose behind all of God's miracles is to turn people's hearts towards Him. The purpose of all of them. Remember 1 Kings chapter 18 with Elijah? There was a battle between Baal and their prophets and, and Elijah. And there's a display of supernatural, right? And God obviously just destroys the prophets of Baal in, in, in that whole display in 1 Kings 18. And when it's all said and done, you know what Elijah said to the Israelites or to the Lord? He said, answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you are Lord by, like, you know, by um, basically calling down fire onto the altar and just decimating the bull. Answer me, these people know that you are Lord and you are God. And by this, you will turn their hearts back again. <laughs> the purpose of Elijah's miracle in calling down fire from heaven was so they would turn their hearts back. Not that the people would be impressed and leave it at that. It was to produce repentance in people. And that's the same with what the whole purpose here is in this as well. With Jesus and all the Galileans and the royal officials. Number four. At some point, all genuine faith will require trust in Jesus' words alone. Even if you experience the supernatural and you have this amazing experience you still, from that day forward, for the rest of your Christian life, have to live your life in response to His Word. That's all you've got. You have the Bible. You have the Word in front of you. That's all, that's all that's left now. His Spirit, of course, is present in you. And He's using the words to try to convict your life and change your life. But at some point, all of us have to believe the Word. Even at the supernatural, we still have to believe that... Uh, that he, his identity in which he was revealed to us in that supernatural experience, that he still is God. There's a response required from us to him. All faith requires a trust in Jesus' word alone. And even after you become a Christian, that's the mandate. Every day I have to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. To follow him is to follow his word. That's how the Christian life works. I like this one. Some people progress towards genuine faith in Jesus. <laughs> I love this guy. All he cares about him is a miracle worker. But at least it's some kind of faith in Jesus. He doesn't complete, he's not atheist. He believes in Jesus for something. Number two, he doesn't believe yet that he's the son of God, but he trusts his word enough to at least take steps towards obeying him. He says go and he starts off. But then three, when he sees what the sign produced, he has genuine faith in, this, in the Lord. That's the same with us. I've, ne I've never, I don't think ever in my life led anyone to Christ first conversation. It's always about progression. And working in people's lives and letting God do His work. And finally, our faith in Christ is something we need to be constantly looking to share with others. You might think, duh. <laughs> yeah, of course, Andrew. Let me ask you a question. Not to make you feel guilty. Just to ask you a question. When's the last time you shared your faith with others? A week? A month? A year? Never? Never had a conversation with someone in your friends, friends or family who said, Listen, I, this is Jesus that I know who's made a tremendous difference in my life. And for these reasons, I've been freed from sin. He's, I've been just tremendously blessed by the promises that He's offered me. Can I tell you a little bit about Him? I'd like you to have the same thing that I have. 
and know the same person that I know. It's simple to read, but do we do it? When's the last time you actually had that one-on-one -on -one conversation with a family member or a friend or a household member? We can learn from this royal official. His was minutes or, or, or moments and he was already an evangelist. May this be a word of encouragement to you. <laughs> Genesis House will not grow unless we share. How lovely are the feet of those who bring good news. Jesus could supernaturally appear to every single person in Okotoks and say, you know what? I am the Lord. He doesn't do that. He's done it to one guy in our entire church. That's it. He says, you, Genesis House, bring the feet. You be the feet that brings the good news. We will never grow without our willingness to share our faith.